This morning we will continue in our time in the book of Romans, chapter 3. As you're turning there, let me ask a few questions, just kind of set the stage. Do you really care if God is fair or not? Does it matter to you if God is fair? What, I don't know if you've thought much about that. Maybe you have. What about the, the judges in our court system? Does it matter if they're fair? Maybe you haven't thought much about that this week or this morning because you're not on trial yourself, but if someone came and hurt you or one of your family members this week, would you want a fair judge? Or would you be like, yeah. Just want to make sure you're all awake here, okay. Pretty certain we all want a fair judge, right? A fair trial when that ruling came down. How do we know what fair is anyways? We all have this inner lawyer talking to us on a regular basis. Do you ever listen to that voice? Letting us know what's fair, what isn't fair. Uh, that starts at a very young age, by the way. What about forgiveness? How much does it concern you that God forgives people? And what if God's forgiveness came at the expense of his fairness? Would that matter to you? Fairness towards sin, towards wrong, is vitally important. And if God wasn't fair on earth, things would begin to crumble. And we are people who look highly upon fairness, whether that's at work or school or in your community or in sports. We hold fairness at a high level. Fairness matters to every single one of us here this morning in some way, shape, or form. And we need a God who is fair, but we also need a God who forgives. If God is only fair and never forgives or provides a way of forgiveness, then we're all destined to a horrible, horrible end. So we desperately need forgiveness, whether we fully understand it or not. We need forgiveness for the things we do wrong in life. We need forgiveness for the sins that we commit. We need it. But we also need God to be fair, to be just. And we, we sense that in ourselves. We see, we see that in our world. We need justice. So how can God remain fair and forgive at the same time? How can God the judge execute a sentence and forgive? How can he forgive people who admit their guilt and still be just at the same time? That, I believe, is the point of these verses here this morning, the point of this passage. And so here's the main idea. Here's what I will seek to argue here this morning. Christians are made right only through Jesus because only Jesus paid the penalty for sins, which proves that God is fair to forgive. Christians are made right only through Jesus because only Jesus paid the penalty for sins, which proves that God is fair to forgive. I needed some help to get here this week. I leaned heavily upon Christopher Ash and his commentary to bring some clarity to this main idea this morning. So we're going to break down this main idea really in three points. We're going to just take this main idea in three sections as we walk through verses 21 through 26 in Romans chapter 3. 
So if you haven't turned there, turn to Romans chapter 3. It will help you, as I, I say every week, to have a Bible open. If you don't have one, there, there are some seated in the, the seats in front of you. And if you're unfamiliar looking at a Bible, the, the large numbers are the chapter numbers, the small numbers are the verse numbers. And we're going to look at Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26, just the six verses there. In the margin of his Bible for Romans 3.21, Martin Luther wrote this, the chief point, the very central place of the epistle and the whole Bible. Leon Morris calls this passage possibly the most single paragraph ever written. I've heard these types of quotes. I was reminded of them again this week. Thanks to Zach. Thank you, brother. No pressure handling the most important paragraph in the Bible. It's an overwhelming passage. It's an overwhelming privilege to stand before God and before you and to kind of walk us through this. So hopefully this will help us to understand who God is. So let's, to set the stage again, how we got to verse 21, let's start back at the beginning in Romans chapter 3 and read all the way through 26. Paul begins, then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you're judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. But by no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying? Their condemnation is just. Well, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all, for we already have charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they've not known. There's no fear of God before their eyes. And now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now... But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time 
so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And so here is the main idea again. Christians are made right only through Jesus because only Jesus paid the penalty for sins, which proves that God is fair to forgive. We need to be careful as we walk through these verses. I was reminded this week that to keep the main thing the main thing. And the central theme of this section is all about God before it's about us. And and the truth that Paul shares with us in these verses is not a new doctrine, but an understanding of Old Testament teaching coming to completion through Jesus Christ. One point of reference here, if you're used to reading this or being maybe even confused in this section, but verses 21 through 26 in the Greek is just one sentence. So you thought the Puritans were bad. Paul is expressing this one thought for us, one sentence here. So this is a whole section that we're going to cover. So point number one, the first section of our main idea, Christians are made right only through Jesus. If you remember, if you go back to Romans chapter one, we talked about this, I don't remember, a while ago. We see the pronouncement that Paul makes for his ministry, 116, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And so Paul now, here in our passage, is going to argue how the righteousness of God is made known in the gospel. And he's going to sum up how Christians can be made right only through Jesus. If you remember, Paul said in verse 20, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So what he's saying there, again to remind us in verse 20, no one is made right, no one is declared righteous, no one is made holy and right before God by doing the works of the law. The law, the the word of God was there to show us our sin, not pay for our sin. So if the Jews believed that the law of Moses was a path that they could walk to receive salvation through their own effort, through their own knowledge and privilege to make themselves right with God, they had misunderstand the law. The law's purpose was never to provide a way to be made right with God, but to show God's righteousness and our sinfulness. It was to expose us. And they were always looking forward through the law, always looking forward. When a Jew in the Old Testament believed the promises of God, they were always believing by looking forward to the one who would fulfill those promises. That's why Jesus says multiple times in John's gospel, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. And then 546, for if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. The problem arose, though, for the Old Testament saints is they began to trust the law without the promise, and the commandments without Christ, and the statutes without the Savior. And they, and they thought just having the law, just having the privilege, just being a Jew would save them. And Paul's writing saying, no, you've missed the point. That was the world that Jesus entered when he came to preach the good news to sinners. That's the world we live in now. 
isn't it? Like the world we live in now is people would rather try to live a good life, try to do all of the, 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 the points of, of good obedience in life and being nice to people and helping old people and giving when you can, somehow earning salvation step by step so that they can spend this forever with God. And, and we, we've talked about this in prior weeks. We know the impulse in ourselves to self-justify to somehow make us righteous. And this is anti-gospel. The only way we're saved is through the righteousness of God. And what is righteousness? Righteousness is a, a validating performance record which allows us to go and live differently, to be accepted. Think about this in terms of your life and the, and the experiences you have. When you're ready to go to college, you can't just go anywhere, you have to apply. And then you have to prove that you're worthy of getting into that college. Any seniors want to acknowledge that? And when you're done with college, you, you want to get a job, you have to put yourself forward. And what do you hand them? You can answer back. A resume or a record. This is, why, this is what I got the degree in, this is how smart I am, 4.0 all of my extracurricular activities. And what you're doing is you're trying to give them a performance record of why you should be accepted. We do this in, in life. I'm, I'm worthy of this position, please accept me. In fact, we do this in other parts, right? When you're ready to buy a car, what do you have to do? You have to prove you're gonna pay for it. You're gonna buy a home, you have to prove that you have the money to, to take care of it. It's a performance record of some sort. But the problem is, we take this mentality and then we apply it to God and our relationship to God. And outside of the God, outside of the gospel, we try to develop this righteousness on our own and offer it up to God and anxiously hope, God, please accept me. Friends, the Bible says the only way that God will accept you is by a perfect record, a perfect righteousness. And we don't have that in ourselves, right? Does anyone want to say they have a perfect record? And if we know that about ourselves because we know ourselves so well, then we need the gospel. We need what Jesus has done for us. The gospel offers us perfect righteousness only through Jesus Christ, and it's freely given. This is contrary to every other religion on earth. It is contrary to every impulse in yourself. It comes freely as a gift. And how do you receive this righteousness? He says, through faith, right there in verse 22, through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Well, believe in what? Believe in who? For all who believe in Jesus. Some people might think that, that faith, believing in Jesus is a work, that we're doing some kind of work in this. They might believe that faith is an intense attitude of surrender or made a state, maybe a state of confidence 
But when Paul says freely in verse 24, it's the same word that Jesus uses in John 15, 5, they hated me without cause. So freely and without cause are the same word. The word freely means without a cause, in a way that is totally and wholly unwarranted, given or done for no reason. And you might have fallen into this trap, or maybe you're there this morning, as I was in a youth, to, to mistake that our faith is actually what saves us, and that you have to muster up your faith. You have to, to strengthen it up. You have to make your faith work. But faith is simply the vehicle that salvation comes to us. And both the Old Testament and New Testament is the work of Jesus Christ that brings our salvation. Faith is simply the attitude of coming to God with empty hands. But if you continue to to think of faith, of belief, as the cause of your salvation, you will stop looking at Christ and you will begin to stare at your faith. And I wonder if where some of you are at in this point this morning, when you see doubts that arise in your life, it begins to scare you and you wonder, am I really saved? Did I have the right faith or did I have enough faith? And when you don't have the same excitement or things are not as clear, you begin to worry. And what has happened to you, friend, is that you've turned your faith into a work that you somehow need to polish and improve upon when faith is only meant to be the vehicle that salvation comes. It's not our faith that saves, it's what our faith is in that saves. And what is our faith in? Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the good doctor and preacher said this, the man who has faith is the man who is no longer looking at himself and no longer looking to himself. He no longer looks at anything he once was. He does not look at what he is now. He does not look at what he hopes to be. He looks entirely to the Lord Jesus Christ in his finished work and rests on that alone. Friends, I don't have to tell you how many times that quote ministers to my soul a pastor who should know better and who begins to, to sway and doubt and think it's, it's got to be up to you, Jeff. You got to just muster up this, this work, Jeff. If salvation was up to me, I'd be in trouble. So don't get trapped at looking at your work or your obedience to save you. We need to look at Jesus Christ. He is who saves us. And if you feel this morning that your faith is weak, the right response isn't to focus on your faith, but to spend time looking at the one, the object of which your faith rests. If your faith feels weak, friends, you need to spend more time with Jesus. You need to be in the word reading of Jesus. I would say read the gospels. Spend time with him and your faith will be strengthened and the one that it should be strengthened in. Perhaps this morning you're here and all of this is maybe going over your head or just missed completely. The offer for faith and belief in Jesus throughout this passage, Paul's making this argument over and over, is open to everyone. Verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction, meaning there's no, 
There's no select groups that can be saved. For all, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's, it's not that we just have missed the mark, although we have, but that we've exchanged the worship of God to worship other things, ourselves and our idols and our projects. And in so doing, we've lost our glory. And we need to turn away from ourselves and place our faith in Jesus Christ and believe Him for what He has accomplished on the cross for salvation for us. And this offer is open to everyone, friends. Whether you're retired, been in the church for a long time, or you're a child here because mom and dad make you come every Sunday, we all will stand by ourselves before God one day and you will hold a record of righteousness before him that day. There will be an end to your life one day, friends. Maybe after a few years from now or a long life, but you will stand along with me before a holy, just, and fair God. And because God is just and He's fair and He's holy, He will hold each person accountable for their sins and the record of righteousness. God will not have a change of heart on that last day. He will not violate His Word. He will not deny His own nature. God will be who He says He will be. And there are perhaps people here this morning who are secretly harboring this foolish hope in their hearts that when they meet God, that He will be a different God than what the Bible says. That righteousness is not that important to Him, and that you can stand by yourself, and that God will somehow look at you and think, well, you tried. Have you convinced yourself this morning that you're just fine? Friends, that is not the God of the Bible. That's not the God of Genesis who kicked Adam and Eve out of the garden when they sinned, who destroyed the world in a flood. That's not the God that we read of in the Scriptures. And if you're hoping for God to be a different type of God than when you read in the Bible, you're hoping for something that's impossible. God has never changed, and His holiness demands that He deal with sin. Friends, the Bible also shows us that there are points of no return. You are not given a a limitless amount of time to repent. You're given today, right now, this moment, You're not promised the next hour. So this message needs to be responded to now and not put off. And so my prayer this morning, my prayer has been this week, is that you would turn from your sins and that you would trust in Jesus Christ alone and believe in Christ and what he's accomplished for us on the cross. And when you believe in what Christ has done for you on the cross, you will have His righteousness covering your life when you stand before God in that day. We sang about this earlier. Did you catch it? Dressed in His righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. We sing about it because it's true. And as Christians, 
we will stand before God, not holding on to our own attempts of righteousness, but Christ's righteousness for what he's accomplished for us on the cross. Christians here this morning, we were meant to display the glory of God with our lives so that when someone viewed our lives and saw and heard that we're Christians, they would say, oh, that's what God is like. Is that true of your life today, Christian? Are you reading and obeying the word in such a way that people look at your life and say, oh, is that what God is like? Or do people view and observe your life, your, your words, your attitudes, your decisions, and say, that is what God is like, and I want to, by their testimony of the word they preach and they live, I want to follow that God. These are hard questions to think through, but I think they're great conversation starters. Really, for most of you who don't ever want to be uncomfortable, you should ask someone this question about you. No, seriously, you should. If you're going to hang out today for the member meeting, by the way, I wish you will. We're to have food. I don't know if you're going to smell it here soon, but at some point it's going to waft into this room. And a great opportunity to sit around tables and time of fellowship. Why don't you make everyone awkward in the table on purpose and ask them, am I displaying God's glory by the way I, wi- by the way I live my life? Wouldn't you want to know that if you're not? Some of the hazards of having a beard is that when I eat food, sometimes it's little remnants are left. And my kids have a way of saying, Dad, you got something in your beard. I appreciate that. So I don't walk around with a big glump of, you know, cream cheese. Some of you might be walking around with glumps of cream cheese on your face. And no one's telling you. You know, part of being in a a Christian family, a church, is that we love and care for one another and we're willing to say the hard things with love. To encourage, not not to tear down. See, it should look like and many small steps as Christians that we're showcasing God's glory by how we have spent time in the Word and spent time with other Christians. Slowly, step by step, right? Becoming more like Jesus every little, every little step. But that's the progress of Christian faith. And we need other Christians in our life to help us. And we need to be the help to other Christians in that way too. Well, first... Christians are made right only through Jesus, first point. Second, because only Jesus paid the penalty for sins. Look at verse 24. And they are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward the propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Now, I need, you need to recognize there's some big theological terms here, and I don't want to go too quickly through them or assume that we all know what they mean. And so first, Paul says that we're justified by his grace as a gift. To be justified means to be put into right relation with God. It's not a moral change in us, which, which does happen, Lord willing, slowly 
and gradually in our life, but this is an instant change of legal status. The instant change achieves the redemption of those who are in Christ Jesus. And see, redemption has its roots deeply in the Old Testament. In a society that didn't take, it didn't take much to get yourself into debt and to having to sell yourself into some sort of uh, worked slavery, and it took a lot to get yourself out. This word of redemption was repeated a lot. And in the Old Testament, in fact, God provided a way for a kinsman redeemer who could purchase you out of slavery, to take you out of that. And now Paul is telling us that we're under sin. We read that earlier in the chapter, meaning we're burdened under sin. We cannot remove ourselves. We're slaves to sin. Someone would need to purchase us out of slavery to redeem us. And that's what Christ has done. And how did eternal redemption happen? How is it possible? It says there, because God put forward Christ Jesus as a propitiation by His blood. Another big word, a word in which many people stumble over, propitiation. Propitiation accurately describes and refers to the place of atonement we find out in the Old Testament that place is called the mercy seat. The mercy seat for the Old Covenant is the gold plate that covered the Israel's Ark of the Covenant. It's where the high priest sprinkled blood every year on the Day of Atonement. And so Paul is teaching us now that Jesus is the mercy seat for the New Covenant in the sense that He is the place where God accomplished the ultimate propitiation. A propitiation is a sacrifice that takes away wrath. It's a wrath quencher. Christ was a propitiation to satisfy God's anger, His wrath towards sin. Now, I have something shocking, even offensive, that it isn't true, holy, if you've ever said, God hates the sin but loves the sinner. Somewhat true. The Bible teaches us, though, that God hates the sinner, and His wrath rests upon Him. If God loved me, just didn't like some of the things that I did, then the lesser sacrifice of expiation would be sufficient here. Expiation is, is removing something or taking something away. In biblical terms, it has to do with the taking away of guilt through the payment of a penalty or an offering of an atonement. But that's not the word that's used here in Paul's writing. We needed propitiation because God hates me as a guilty rebel against him. I wasn't just unfriendly to God, like somehow I just simply dismissed him, but I was actually rebelling against him. And God has every right to be angry at me He has every right to be angry at me because I loved sin more than I loved him. Now, the paradox of the gospel is this, as Martin Luther puts it, God loves us even as he hates us. It's truly a paradox. And so, we cannot ignore the wrath of God towards sinners because if we do, we will diminish his justice and they will minimize the sacrifice for sin on the cross. They are equal and they're necessary to understand the cross. But we also need to understand of God's love. 
Paul will later say in chapter 5, God demonstrates his love toward us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Furthermore, in this passage, in this section, we need to notice that it was God who put forward Jesus. Jesus wasn't a forced party to all of this, but willingly intervened between a vengeful God and sinners. He is our substitute for sin, and it was God's idea. To be incredibly clear, this is not a picture of God the Father as some angry old man and Jesus as this nice, meek, mild-mannered dude who just offers up his life to satisfy this outrageous anger because his father couldn't control himself. That is not what the Bible says. There is perfect unity between God the Father and God the Son. God the Father puts the Son forward and the Son willingly obeys the Father. Love and justice motivate the cross. That's the only way that we would be saved. And so first, Christians are made right only through Jesus. Second, because only Jesus paid the penalty for sins. And third, which proves that God is fair to forgive. This morning we talked about the idea of fairness. And and we all have this, this fairness meter built inside of us. And from an early age, we're on the lookout for things being fair with precision, right? If you don't understand this, just visit the nursery next week. Give a kid three minutes after mom and dad leave, and they go find a toy, and another kid takes that toy, you will understand what fairness is and the fairness meter inside of every human. It's not fair. They will let you know it's not fair. So we all come hardwired for this. I seriously doubt parents are coaching their kids before they drop them off. It just happens in us. It's built inside of us. Friends, that's called justice. We have this inside of us. When we see something happen that hurts or hinders someone else or ourselves, we rise up. Right? Have you felt that before? Of anger and justice that's not right. Do you know who put that there inside of you? God. Because God is just. God is fair. So was it fair that God passed over former sins in the Old Testament? Look at verse 25, the second half of it. It says, this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. See, the cross demonstrates that God has always been right to rescue the guilty sinner when they repent and trust in the promise of the Savior. It shows us that God is fair to forgive whenever he pleases. When Paul writes in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins, it it shoots our memories back to the, the Old Testament of the angel passing over the doorposts in Egypt when the blood of the lamb was present. And then from Abraham to King David, believers had not been punished for their sins, but had been justified by faith. 
It's interesting that the word forbearance can also be translated tolerance. So why would God be tolerant with those former sins? How can God be patient and not punish the sinner in the Old Testament? How can God be holy and not deal with sin? See, in the Old Testament, the sacrifices were valid in God's mind because they appeased his anger for a moment. The sins of all the Old Testament believers had never actually been atoned, paid for. They'd been passed over, not finally resolved, just passed over. Why? The lambs they sacrificed could not actually pay for sin. Hebrews 10.4 says that. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. They were only symbols of what Jesus would come and do. It would take a perfect man to die and pay for them. See, the, the bulls and goats and lambs, they were just symbols. Their atonement for their sins was, was to be based upon Christ's future sacrifice. He was looking forward to the cross where his wrath against them would be satisfied and his justice was carried out on the cross and the cross vindicates his character and proves that it is fair for him to forgive them. See, what we're, just, what we're talking about here, what we're saying is that they were saved on credit in the Old Testament and we're saved on debit. Do you know how credit works? When I purchase a dinner on my credit card, I get the food on credit. But within a month, I get the bill, and I need to pay for what I borrowed. God saved Old Testament believers on credit, just like when I enter my credit card in the machine. They offered sacrifices to God in faith. And just like when I received the meal, they received genuine forgiveness of sin. And just like I receive a bill for the food and pay for it, Christ received the bill and paid their sin their debt sin, full on the cross. And so Christ died publicly to demonstrate God's righteousness in saving Old Testament believers on credit. But when you're saved now on this side of the cross, you're saved on debit because it's already been done. It's already in the account for the Christian. And God has met our greatest need on the cross. His wrath has been satisfied, propitiated, with the result of us being redeemed from the state of being under sin, and so that we're acquitted rather than condemned. Friends, this is why it's so important for us to talk about the cross when we talk about the gospel, to talk about Christ's sacrifice and what he accomplished for us. This revolution, I just changed the course of history and it affects every part of our life today. God's punishment of us was accomplished on the cross when Jesus voluntarily placed himself between two thieves for us. See, God would be faithful to his word of what he said all long ago. It's really good that we're spending time in the next 16, 17 weeks in our equipping class to go over the Old Testament Maybe if you were there this morning, you felt it was a little daunting, but it's good because you're going to get an understanding throughout the reading of the Old Testament of what God was doing. It wasn't like God switched at Malachi and was like, yeah, that was good. Plan B. Right? It was always plan A from beginning to end. 
He didn't change his mind. He didn't have half time and thought, that's just not working. It was always his plan. And when you, when you read the Old Testament, you'll understand the New Testament even more, especially this passage. I thought about going into the book of Leviticus and just reading it this morning, but then I wanted you to come back next week, so. But you should spend some time reading it. All of what Paul is talking about here is all understood in light of the Old Testament and what God had set forth and how it was accomplished through Jesus Christ. This morning, we're going to partake of the Lord's Supper of communion meal to remember of what Christ has done. See, in Jesus Christ, the holy God came and took on flesh. He came and lived a perfect life in order to offer himself as a sinless sacrifice. And on the cross of his crucifixion, he then took on himself the punishment of God for the sins of all those who would turn and trust in him. And then guess what? Three days later, he raised to life. As satisfaction. God saw that as satisfaction of what he had done. And that is what we celebrate when we come and gather together as Christians before the Lord's Supper. I'm going to ask the elders, those that are serving, to come forward. And we're going to partake of this communion meal this morning. As they're coming and as the elements are passed, I want you to know that as a church family, we want to encourage our growth and holiness. And so we encourage you, as Paul says, to examine yourself before you come to the Lord's table. We realize as God's special people, the ones called by his name, that we must not allow unrepented sin to continue in our lives. Allowing unrepented sin to abide in our lives that lies about the God who has called us and it deceives the world about what God is like. And God is committed to his own holiness God is committed to the holiness of his people. So I want you, friends, Christians, to take a moment quietly as, this, as these are passed out to confess your sins, any wrongdoings, wrongdoings in your life. It's part of the reason why we include in every service now at the beginning, if you notice, the, the prayer of confession and the assurance of pardon is to, to, to bring us awareness again because we live out in the world for, for other six days and we get, we get consumed with many things and that draws our minds back again to God's goodness and holiness and forgiveness, Christian, for our sins. So I want to encourage you to spend that time as it's past. I also want to, to warn you that this meal that we're part, gonna take here, the, the, the crackers and the juice, this is for believers. This is for Christians. So if you're here this morning, you're not a Christian, or you're not sure if you are, I, I would encourage you to hold off, to, to observe us, to watch us as we partake of this as a church family, and then come talk to us. See, this meal is for sinners who have repented of their sin and are trusting in Jesus Christ. So let me pray, and then we're going to hand out the elements. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you that we could gather together as your people to read your word, and we thank you for the understanding that we have from it, and I pray that you would bring further understanding of your word to us. God, we thank you for sending your son to live among us, 
and to die for us. And we thank you for raising him up on that third day, conquering death, and bringing him back to your side where he reigns now. Help us to remember you, to remember Christ and what he's accomplished for us, and to glory in that alone. For we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.